you know, no matter what trip you go on or what relative you go see or friends, it's always nice. Well, most of the time nice when you come home. Depends on what you come home to, I guess. But, but home is uh, kind of what we're going to talk about today, kind of in the background. Uh, coming home, seeing God uh, is a way of looking at something. Psalm 63 tells us that it says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and whirly land where there is no water. So it's this longing. We get this in the Psalms actually quite a bit. This longing for God, trying to uh, get to Him in some ways. And, and it's kind of in our hearts and, and we find out that uh, sometimes we find Him in some of the most interesting places. But uh, we are told that we'll find Him when we worship, when we seek Him. Um, and longing for heaven is really longing for God, is really what, this, uh, what we're talking about. Um, in Revelation 22.4, which is the very last chapter of Revelation, it says, they will see His face. This is everybody who's in the new heaven and the new earth. And His name will be on their foreheads. It's kind of an interesting image, isn't it? Now, when we go through a book like Revelation, we have to remember that it talks about real things, but it does it in metaphoric ways. Um, I don't think you're supposed to take from this that you're going to have a tattoo on your forehead. Uh, you can if you want. That's not the point. His name on our foreheads, that's an Old Testament idiom that says that he's the one that you follow and you are his ownership in some ways. He's, he's, he, he, you're his servant. That's the idea. But we will see his face. Now, seeing God's face is a really big deal. Uh, if you want to, this is the on, only little chapter we'll look at in the Bible. Uh, I'll give you the rest up on the screen. In Exodus 33, we get a little bit of the first time where is, is it a good idea to try to, to uh, look at God's face. And so when you, when you see at the end of the Bible, this verse, you, I don't know if it grabs us as much as it maybe should. Um, if you go back to, to verse uh, 17 and 18 in Exodus 33, uh, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. He's asking them to go before him uh, as they go into the uh, land. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So Moses is kind of thinking, well, he, we know each other, got a good relationship going, so I'm going to ask a question. Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, which is Yahweh, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Now this is Moses. This isn't some just run-of-the-mill person. This is somebody who... God had chosen to be his, his spokesperson. God had chosen to be uh, one of the, the leader of Israel at this time, taking them out of Egypt. And essentially, it's a little bit longer answer, but when Moses says, can I see your face? He's like, nope. <laughs> and it's, it's very good that you don't. But he, did, he, he went on, verse 21, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. 
Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. It's just a really interesting thing. I don't know, we've been talking about this in Bible studies and in sermons. You know, when you look at narrative, I, I think it's always good to kind of, you know, I have to close my eyes, maybe you don't. But I close my eyes and try to picture what this would have looked like. It's a little hard here. Um, this word glory kind of sets there that Glory is, is, is a word that's close to the word for weight and heavy. There's something here that we can't quite grab onto. There's something about Yahweh to see in his fullness that we, a, a human can't handle, even a human like Moses. So in my movie, I'll try to keep my eyes open, uh, you know, you've got essentially just this radiant being that you don't get to see the being. It's kind of a little bit like kind of going back to the children's room. They're always told, don't look at the sun. You know, I remember, I think that was in physics class in high school. We used that, uh, there was an eclipse coming by. We used a piece of paper and you look through the hole and, and you can see the eclipse on the paper because you're not supposed to stare right at it because it causes problems with your eyes. So there's a little bit of that going on here. The radiance is so great that Moses himself can't see this. And so what he sees is kind of the rays of God's countenance. Um, that's the best I can do. If you have a good movie in your mind, let me know. I'd like to hear what your movie looks like. Um, but I, I think when you look at this, this is attributed to Jesus in, in Paul's first letter to Timothy. Um, if you look before, I don't know if you knew that, but if I, if I ever put little... This is talking about in verses 1 through 15 about Jesus or Yahweh, or in this case it looks like both, alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light. That's kind of a little bit like we're talking to in, in Exodus, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now, who's the whom there? What are we not seeing? A lot of people saw Jesus, right? What does it say we didn't see? Well, it's the unapproachable light that they didn't see. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. There's something about, so when we go back to Revelation 22, you will see God's face. Well, at this point, nobody really has. Nobody's been able to take in that full glory because of who we are as humans. Something radical must change for this to happen. In Hebrews 12, it talks about how we can we're disciplined by God in this life so we can show that we truly have faith. And he kind of sums this up by saying, work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Now, holy word means set apart. Now, Marcus gave a sermon on that. Um, the idea of, of that's who God is. And so we have to be like that. We've been talking about that. We've been singing about that. Uh, I talked a little bit in the in the sermon, or in the welcome, the idea that we sometimes miss this as Christians, how important it is that we have access to the Father. We just kind of think, well, yeah, we got access, that's cool. Um, it is cool, uh, but it, it also costs God his own son. Uh, and we can see some of God's qualities now. I mean, that's what we get here. We're not left orphaned, and we this is the children's sermon. You know, the heavens proclaim the glory of God and the skies to play his craftsmanship. We can look out and see that. You know, until the last hundred years or so, almost all scientists were theists. Most of them are Christian. You've got 
Something like Pascal saying, seeing all of God's wonder in creation makes him closer to God. Now we seem to separate that for some unknown reason, you know, as if science and faith are at odds against each other. That's kind of a contemporary idea. It's certainly not a biblical idea. And when I look at something like the solar system or, you know, and, and, and sometimes I know it spills over into sermons and Bible studies, and if you're not interested in that, you're kind of like, oh, here he goes again. But it's just amazing on how much of even the DNA in us, the code, billions of pieces of information that all tell something. It's ordered. I mean, there's no way mathematically that that could have happened by chance. That's silly. You know, it doesn't work. And so if you take your two scopes, your telescope, and look out into the stars, you see the glory of God. Or your microscope and look into the intricacies of life, you see the glory of God. And we think we can make life somehow. It's, it's yeah, you know, we can't even make a seed. We can hybrid the seeds and make them less resistant to floods and droughts, but we can't make a seed. We can't even make a seed of wheat. Good luck making life. It's the old adage, you know, you can try to grow your own food, but get your own dirt. You know, it's God's given us what we need. And then in Romans 1, this is kind of the start of obviously, uh, I think, the greatest scroll of or codex of systematic theology in the world is the book of Romans. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So you, you probably heard that. Well, what about the person on the island that never hears about Jesus? It's like, well, can they see the sky? then they should, within them, that intrinsic image-bearing soul that they have, they should reach out and they'll get what they need. And there might just be a ship come by with an evangelist on there. Who knows how it works? God will get to them. But this is the idea. It's like people can say, well, God hasn't shown me enough. Well, he thinks he has. And who are you going to go with there? Bertrand Russell, one of the old uh, atheists, now we have new atheists, and I assume we'll have newer atheists eventually, but uh, he said in a debate, somebody asked him, why, what, what are you going to say if you're wrong as an atheist and God really exists when you get in front of him? And he said, I'm going to tell him he didn't give me enough evidence. So that's Bertrand Russell's idea. This is God's idea. And you're free to pick which one you want. But I'm guessing when you die, you're not going to stand in front of Bertrand Russell. Uh, that's not the way the Bible says it. So, so how do we have access even now, given that you know, we're fallen, we've been singing about it, this be through Jesus. We see this in Hebrews, we see this in a lot of places. And I put these charts back out there because I know you guys wanted them. Um, I would like to say this was a lot of work, but it wasn't. It was a lot of fun. Um, the, uh, this kind of is the gospel in a nutshell. It tells heaven and earth. Um, there's some out there. Um, I guess we could put one, put a copy on our website and you could get your own. But it kind of tells us 
what do we mean we have access by faith? Well, when we die, which is where this starts, which I know is kind of morbid, but if you didn't know that, that's eventually going to happen. Sorry. It is going to happen. I'm not, hopefully not today. Drive careful out there, folks. Um, when we die, there's a judgment of faith. Do you believe? And there's some scriptures there, Ephesians 2 and others. Do you accept the sacrifice? And if you do, then you get to go to what we're calling on this chart, current heaven, which exists right now. Where is it? Still working on that. Um, I think it might be up. I don't know. We talked about that. This is heaven part 11. So if you're really wondering about it, you can go back to heavens part 1 through 9, and that'll help you. Or you go to a place called current hell, which we're still looking for that too. And I wouldn't look for that one near as much. But that's it. That's the access. And so we have access. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. The holy place back to the welcome. That's where the most holy place is where only the high priest, only once a year on Yom Kippur, goes in there for the sins of the people in the temple. Well, we get to enter in there, metaphoric, we get to go right to the heart because of Jesus. You remember in Matthew, that's a nice metaphor that really happened that when Jesus cried his last, the curtain separating the holy place from everything else was torn from top to bottom, Matthew tells us. Well, who's doing the tearing there? You know, it's open. This is kind of what Hebrews 10 is talking about. And then earlier in Hebrews 4, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So we're boldly coming because of Jesus, not because of us. But what we're talking about here is on this earth, as we still live, we get a glimpse of God. You get a glimpse of this glory. In John 1, John puts it this way. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. I wonder what he's talking, we've seen his glory. We, who's we? I suppose it's at least the apostles, including John. But it, it harkens back to a time on a mountain where John, who's the author of this book, and his friend Peter and his brother James were with Jesus. He took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. A little bit of the glory. I wonder, you know, we don't quite know from the Gospels, but I'm guessing they went right on their belly. That's what happens. Isaiah goes on his belly. Jeremiah goes, everybody's on their belly. Why? Because this is too much to handle. And these guys are just getting visions. They're not really there in the throne room in body and soul. But maybe that's what he's talking. We've seen his glory. It could be theirs where they saw it, but it could be the idea that he showed Yahweh. But we have this. What, what is it talking about when it says we can see God, but yet we can't see God? Because in the upper room in chapter 14 of John, Jesus replies to Philip, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
So why are you asking me to show him to you? You know, you have to think about this. Jesus, we talked a lot about this during Christmas time, right? You know? The Word became flesh. The second person of the Trinity takes on sarks, flesh, physicalness. So we can't, he kind of cloaks the glory so we can see him. It would have been easier for Jesus, I suppose, if he glowed the whole time he was walking. It would be easier to say, well, that must be Jesus. He's lighting up over there. You know, he looked like anybody else. He didn't act like anybody else. But they saw pieces of that. But truly seeing is yet to come. And, and Jesus talks about this, which kind of sum, sums up some of the Psalms, when he says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Shall see God. We see God in different ways. We've talked about seeing him in the planets and the DNA. and all. Yes, you see pieces of God, but back to Exodus, no one completely see me and live. We can't handle it. It's the grace, approach the throne of what with confidence? Approach the throne of works with confidence? You know, well, you can work your way so you can see Jesus better. No, it's grace. We have to remember that. That's the gospel in a nutshell. We have to have the grace. And only the pure in heart will see God. Well, what would that, if you want to see God, what do you have to have then? You have to have pure of heart. How do I get that? Wouldn't it be good to know that? Well, that's the gospel. Jesus clearly tells us how we become pure in heart. Your sins are forgiven. You're a child of God. You're a new creation. You're born again. There's just all these, you're in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. That's just some of the ways it talks about it. That's, now we're seen as pure in heart. We're seen as blameless before. So this is really the essence of eternal life, is seeing and experiencing Yahweh. I think I, we talked about this before. Maybe you guys can remember, and this is kind of rhetorical, but if you remember, you can yell it out. If you're, what is our purpose? That's a tough question, isn't it? It's an easy answer. What is the purpose for you? Why are you here? And I'm not mean here worshiping. You're here because the sermons are good. I know that. Okay, maybe it's the music, or maybe it's just because you want to worship God. That's probably the reason you should be here. But why, are you, why were you created in the first place? Why did God create anybody? To know God, to know Him. That's, that's why you're here. It makes it pretty easy. I mean, it's an, how do I do that? Well, we've been talking about that for a long time. In John 17, Jesus gives the longest prayer of His in the Bible. And this is the way to have eternal life. To know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. That's what it's all about, knowing God. So every day when you wake up, it's like, can I know God a little bit better today? And how would I do that? I think you can know God a lot through watching football. Or can you? Mm. Hopefully, when you watch football, you don't know him less when you're done. Or whatever it is you do. It doesn't mean it has to be boring. I mean, that's the way we, we, we think about that. We, we read about these living creatures in Revelation, and that all they do all day long is worship God. And I'll tell you one thing, they don't look bored. 
I would be bored. Well, because I'm fallen and because kind of ignorant about what that might be like. And it's probably got a metaphor there too. It's really coming down to what's the main thing back to the Psalms. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything else. That's the key. And what if you go home today and you don't desire God more than anything else? What should you do? You should read the book of Hebrews. No, you can do that if you want. But <laughs> you should pray, Lord, help me want to know you above all else. That's a good prayer, you know. And there's going to be days where you don't feel like knowing God as well. You may feel like God's disappointing you because he's not giving you what you want. And what you want may be very benevolent. It may be good. But you can still say, help me know you better. You know, we talk about worship. How do you worship a God you don't know? How do you know what worship pleases him? How come we're not killing lambs and pigeons and goats and cows? If you thought that pleased God, would you do it? We would have had to design this building a little bit different. Had to add some drainage here. What worship pleases God? Or does it please Him at all? Is He okay with, you know, today probably, unfortunately, 71% of the Christians in America who aren't worshiping in a sanctuary is God like, well, that's all right. And, you know, people say, well, that makes me feel guilty. Good! You should. I mean, you really should. Too much of our, sometimes our evangelical gospel is just about getting in. You know, we, we, we do this, we get to our judgment of faith, and we believe in Jesus, and we get heaven, and we're like, all right, good. I can do what I want got my get out of hell free card when I die and I can just do whatever the heck I want and then you did you it's not what God is that really seeking God and wanting to see his face that's what we're trying again do you desire it? and if you don't desire it ask to desire it I can't make you desire it and there's days I don't there's days you don't feel close to God but if you know his word you know you should <laughs> or you know you can You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That's a, one of the best quotes from The City of God, which is a good book. You're, I won't make that assignment, but it's a good read from Augustine. It was back in the 5th century. It's a while back. But that's really good. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are re restless until they rest in you. I mean, C.S. Lewis kind of put it the same way. If you find that in this life you cannot find anything that completely satisfies you, it may be because you were made for another world. If this is right, this stuff above, we, we live and then we, we believe or we don't, and then we die and we go to these destinations, that's not that long when it comes to how long you'll be after the great white throne judgment, where you're in the new heaven or the new earth or what we call final hell, the lake of fire. That lasts a lot longer because that's eternal. And when, no matter how long you live, I, I just read this week that the oldest 
person in the world that we know of passed away. I think she was 117. So it's one record I do not want to break. I don't really want to spend any more time up here. I'd like to kind of spend some time down here. Um, but you think about that. Why, why are we expecting to have com everything about heaven and eternity and the new heaven and new earth when we're not in the new heaven and the new? There's gonna, in this world, Jesus says it fairly clearly, we're going to have trouble, um, tribulation, however you want to put it, suffering. That's not true in the new heaven and the new earth. So why do we sometimes feel restless? And it doesn't mean that we don't have good times. That's not the point. Uh, the point is that you can't expect that you're going to get everything satisfied in this life because that's not what the world is supposed to be. There's something greater coming. And if that's true, that should change how we live now. We might even sacrifice some of our life to, to make sure that we're storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven and doing things to know God. Um, because the scariest verses in the Bible are back in Matthew 7 when Jesus says, get away from me, I never knew you. So knowing God is why you're here, but him knowing you is part of that too. It's a relationship. You don't want to get to heaven and have to wear a name tag. If you have to put, hello, my name is Brian, you're already in trouble. You should be able to say, hey, there's Brian, there's, you know, whoever. But again, there's always going to be a little red because we are looking for something greater. So our desire should be for God and his gifts to us. So I've heard people say, well, you just want God and don't worry about what he gives. Well, I think you can be thankful for what he gives us. The Bible tells us that. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's a cool promise. The first part's kind of hard, though, because <laughs> we don't always delight ourselves in the Lord. I delight, we can delight ourselves in lots of things, but he'll give you the desires of our heart because now we're, our desires of our heart are lining up with what he wants us to have. And as I get older, the more I know that it, it doesn't always line up with what I find out finally God wants for me and what I want for myself. And I do, and I'll pray sometimes and be like, God, I don't think you're understanding here. It's kind of a stupid prayer if you think about it. Sovereign creator of the universe who knows all things, let me tell you how it is. Yeah. That's the, the Psalms do that, you know. But we, we can do that okay as long as we land the plane eventually. Again, he knows what's best for us. In 1 Timothy 4, they will say it is wrong to be married and wrong to eat certain foods. He's talking about the problems in churches where people worry about minor things and don't treat each other the way they should. But God created these foods to be eaten with thanks by faithful people who know the truth. Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks. For we knew it made acceptable by the word of God and prayer. Again, we can do lots of things and have fun. You know, um, I think you can, and you know the difference. Uh, we want God. We don't want to just go for what he can give us. But it's kind of cool that if we aim for Jesus, we get both of them thrown in. That's kind of neat. The experiences we'll have. We're going to talk about that a lot as we go farther in this series. We're going to 
look at the scriptures that talk about the new heaven and the new earth and, and think about maybe what this will be like when we get there? Nobody's there yet. It hasn't been created yet. And we're not to the new heaven and the new earth. We, we, it hasn't been created, created after the second coming. This is uh, uh, Sam Storms. I don't know if you know him as an author, but he, he wrote a book called The Joy Eternal Increase. This I thought, I was going to just use part of this, but I thought this is so good that I wanted to put this out there because we, we forget sometimes that our connection to Yahweh is about a relationship. We sometimes overuse that word, I know. Um, you know, sometimes as evangelicals will say, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And maybe we'd be better to ask, do you have a good personal relationship with Jesus? Because that's the, the key. Um, our experience of God will never reach its consummation. If you're thinking about, what am I going to do in heaven? Well, we'll talk about that a lot in the next 10 weeks. But we're never going to exhaust it. We will never finally arrive if it's upon reaching a peak we discover there's nothing beyond. Our experience of God will never become stale. It will deepen and develop, intensify and amplify, unfold and increase and broaden. Keep that in your mind and think about relationships. Think about the person in your life or persons in your life that you most like hanging out with. And if you have those times, you don't want the time to end. You just want to keep, keep experiencing that. I mean, how silly would it be for a guy who's been married for 50 years to his wife and they've experienced a lot of things to come up to her and say, well, I've completely exhausted all experiences with you now. That's not the way relationships work, is it? It's not about, well, you know, we've been to these places, we're done, you know. I don't think that's the way it works relationships never end. It's just kind of, it's almost like God knew what he was doing. Making persons that have relationships that can always go on. And how much more you are eternal in the future. Now, I hope most of you are eternal in the future in the nice blue square here, which is the, the final heaven and final earth. The new heaven, the new earth. But there will be some people who are Eternal in this one, the eternal lake of fire. But you're eternal going forward. God's eternal always. And we can't even exhaust our relationships. So this is really what it's about, knowing God and knowing each other. And how should we best do that? Well, the two greatest commandments kind of tell us that, don't they? I don't think they stop once we're in heaven. Love God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And neighbor there probably is fellow Israelite at that point, but fellow believer. Because if they're not believers, they won't be there to love. <laughs> so. And think about the new universe. We're going to hit this pretty hard in the future. We will see God in everything, for he's created it all. And Revelation 21 and 22 gives us a picture of it. Do we, are we going to know everything about Well, no. I don't even know the everything about Paris. And I've read about it. I've never been there. But that doesn't mean I can't find out something about it. 
you know, I heard people, well, we don't know. Well, we do know. We know some things. And knowing what God is preparing for us probably will help us know God better. I mean, you look at the new heaven and the new earth, the creator of that must really be cool. So I'm going to end with this story in 1 Corinthians 2. This is a, comes from an old book. This is a 19th century book, uh, The Happiness of Heaven. There was a king who had no children. And he and his wife wanted children but couldn't have them. And they came upon this orphan boy who was blind living in the streets and decided to adopt him. And the boy, young of age, grows up in the palace as the prince. And he hears about how wonderful his dad is, the king, and how wonderful he rules and how handsome he is and how strong he is and how powerful he is and how benevolent he is. And he goes through life knowing that and believing that with all his heart. But when he's 20 years old, they're able to do some surgery on his eyes. And after that successful surgery, he can see his father for the very first time. And everything that he learned was just a pinprick of what he really knew when he could see his dad through the eyes of someone that knew him very well already. And that's a little bit like what heaven will be like, the new heaven and the new earth. We know God well. We can experience Him through the Spirit because of the Son. We can experience the Father, the Trinitarian God. We can experience that. But we're kind of like that boy we can't quite see yet. But there will come a time when we will not just walk by faith, but we'll walk by sight. We'll be able to see even greater. And those things that we learn from the Spirit and from the Scripture and from the worship and our prayers and our service will so much more make us, when we see Him, it'll make us understand even more what we already know. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for giving us yourself, for creating us in your image so that we can know you. Many of us, I assume, in our time each week have times when we feel so close to you that knowing you is the most important thing. But there are times in our life when that isn't true. And so we step back and pray, Lord, help us want to know you. We know we should. We know it's the main thing. It's the most important thing. And the experience of each other is such a wonderful thing you've given to us as a gift. How much more to be able to experience you in the ways we have now, but looking forward into the way it will be when we will see you face to face. Amen.